You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. I'm Ryan, one of the pastors here. So good to have you on this Labor Day uh, weekend. And, uh, and, and ironically, or maybe sovereignly, depending on how you want to frame it, um, when I was putting this series together, I didn't realize this sermon in particular and this, these texts in particular would fall on Labor Day weekend um, because this really speaks to your work that you do, your labor, whatever that may be, whether that's out in the marketplace or taking care of kids or making art or teaching students or whatever it may be, um, matters to God. And we're going to hopefully see that uh, this morning, uh, depending on our, our theology. You may say, oh, that's just, you know, let's get on to the spiritual stuff. And maybe my work is, yeah, I got to do that for 40 hours a week. But, but hopefully this text, these texts this morning will help us see that your work does matter. And the world matters. And the world does matter to God. And your life matters. Um, and so if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue our series in coffee mug verses. If you've been around uh, the church the last few weeks, we, we're going to have one more week in this. Um, we've been looking at these very familiar passages, maybe so familiar that we kind of lose the weight and the power and the beauty of them. Uh, and often what we lose is the context of them. So we, we, we take these beautiful verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then we put you know, eye black on our eyes and run out of the tunnel and you know Tim Tebow and all that. Um, but we, we lose the context of what that verse actually is talking about, and it's talking about contentment, that Paul learned what it meant to have a lot, what it meant to have nothing. Um, And so doing things through Christ and his strength is basically to say, hey, if I have a lot or have nothing, I can do all things because Christ is with me, because Christ's grace is uh, sufficient. And so I think it's human nature to do that, right? We find these beautiful verses, we take them out of context, they mean something to us, but often we don't look around it and go, well, what does it really mean in its context. What does it mean to the people it was written to? What does it mean for me uh, today? And this morning, we're going to look at a section of scripture that I think is often misread um, and often kind of loses its beauty and its weight, depending on maybe your upbringing or background, or maybe this, these are verses you've never even read before. Um, but it's one of those things that, to ask the question, like, is the world just going to burn? And so it really doesn't matter what we do in this life. Um, Or is there something else uh, going on? Just let it burn, right? Um, Maybe you've ever heard that phrase. Um, Or Ryan, it's just about getting souls in heaven. Everything else is just details. It's like, okay, well, let's go to the Bible and see if it has something else to say about that. Um, So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read the first 14 verses this morning, and then we'll jump in uh, to our our, uh, sermon. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of the coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through, through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away from the, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought to be in, li in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of God for us this morning. And so I, I think it's safe to say maybe in the last hundred years or so, if you've been paying attention, is that we do have a very unhealthy view of the end. Uh, you can look at Left Behind series. You can look at dispensational theology. If you don't know what that is, just Google it later. But, or, or these kind of predictions of the future and how Christ is going to return down to the date, down to the hour there. There tends to be this kind of unhealthy obsession, especially in America in the last hundred years of how it's all going to end and how it's all going to be and how it's all going to uh, work itself out. But the question for us this morning, as we look at scripture, is to say, well, what did the people of that day, how did they understand the end? How did they understand the future of the world? How did they understand what God was up to in their time and their place? Because that's really the, the best way to read scripture. It's not to look at, you know, what does the Left Behind series have to say? Or what does dispensational theology have to say that happened in the last hundred years? But really to say, well, what does scripture first have to say to us? What are the people of that time? How did they understand what was going on? Because I think a lot of times what we do is we, we read the scriptures, and we're all guilty of it, is we read it through our own cultural lenses, right? The way you grew up, uh, how much money you have or don't have, uh, maybe the people that taught you, the people that mentored you. And so we kind of lay that over scripture and say, well, see, there it is. Obviously, this is what it means. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at just for a few moments and ask the two questions based on our text, is what does the future hold for the world and God's people? And secondly, how does that inform and shape our mission as a church? So what does the future hold, and how does that inform and shape our mission um, as, as a church? And, and it's going to take a little minute to get to the second part, but, but just hang with me, because there's, there's a lot to unpack here this morning. But what does the future hold? How do the people of this time and day understand what was going on as Peter addresses them? So notice with me in verse one, this is how the second, uh, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So there's two letters of Peter. There's first Peter and second Peter, if you didn't catch that. Um, and they've, he's written to them maybe around some of these ideas before, right? He's trying to remind them. He's trying to stir up their minds, trying to stir up their hearts to, to think about, well, what did the prophets of old say? What did Jesus say through the apostles after the prophets? Is there something that we need to be reminded of? And I think it's really important just to pause for just a moment because the way the scriptures are written are such a gift to us is that if they are writing to people that are 30, 40, 50 years away from Jesus being resurrected from the dead and they need reminders, you don't think we need reminders, right? 
Like, like there are generations of people that saw Jesus in the flesh, resurrected from the dead. And here's this early church that's forming uh, around this resurrected Christ. And he's saying, hey, remember I already talked about this? Remember I need to remind you uh, again? Like, like you don't think people that were 30, 40, 50 years removed from Jesus, now we're 2,000 years removed, don't need reminders, Right? And this is why we gather in, in worship on Sundays. This is why we get in groups, in city groups. This is why we have equip nights. This is why we have conversations around the dinner table with our families. Why? Because we're forgetful people. And when we forget the promises that God has made and we, we, we forget what God is up to, and we don't engage these texts again in fresh and new ways, and we don't gather to hear the word preached again, what happens is we go, we get into all kinds of wonky, weird places. We write fictional books that really have no bearing on theology, but, but really can stir up uh, fear in people that it's going to happen like this and it's going to go like this. So, so in a very gracious way, Peter is reminding his people, hey, don't, don't forget what God is up to. Let's come back to these promises that you know to be true. And, and, and in so many ways, we constantly need those reminders, right? I need those reminders, not just daily, like, minute by minute, right? Um, maybe you do do too. So Peter's reminding them of the prophets, the apostles, the message they preached about um, the, the gospel. But what is he specifically reminding them about? So if you jump down to verse three, here's what he says. Knowing this, first of all, here's the reminder, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of this coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So he's saying, hey, in the, the last days, now this is an important little phrase, the last days. Well, what's the last days? Well, we understand from the Bible that the last days is from the resurrection of Christ till his coming again. So we, we live in the last days. Some have called it even the, day, the, the days of the gospel or the gospel age, right? It's the, the anticipation that God is coming to renew and restore all things, that judgment will come on the earth and he will make all things new, but we all live in the last days. So he's saying, hey, in the last days when these churches are being planted and you're in the Roman Empire, or if you're in, you know, AD 30, or if you're in AD 60, or you're in, you know, 2022 or 2023, there's going to be scoffers that are going to come. And hey, church, scoffers going to scoff because that's what scoffers do. I've been waiting to say that all week. I, I just, because um, I think it's actually a very funny text. He's like, scoffers are going to come and they're going to scoff. Yeah, because that's what scoffers do, right? A little humor in the Bible. But scoffers are people that are going to make fun of God's people. Now, this is from within the church. They're going to mock them saying, hey, where's this promise of his return? You keep talking about this, that God's going to come and renew and restore and redeem all things, but it doesn't seem like he's coming. It doesn't seem like he's coming through on his promises. Where's this God that you, you speak of? But Peter identifies this and gives a very specific detail that he says in verse 3, he says, these scoffers, because, you know, scoffers are going to scoff, haters going to hate, but scoffers are going to scoff. He says, they will say, where is the promise here coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. But he says, they're following their own sinful desires. That's an interesting little detail. Like, what is that? What does that mean? Why would they do this? Well, I'm going to put myself, sinful desires at its core is really at its core is idolatry. I'm going to put myself in place of God. 
I'm going to say I'm wiser than God. I'm smarter than God. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? The sinful desire says that I have life figured out. I don't need God to tell me what is good and right and how to live my life. I'll be God. I'll, I'll take his place. So, so when I look around and I see that the world is burning down and falling apart, obviously there is no God or God is not coming through on his promises. As if our three-pound sinful brain has all the knowledge of the universe, right? It's a selfish desire. It's a sinful desire. It's to mock what we don't understand. It's a very easy thing to do, right? It's to come to these conclusions that when I look around, obviously something is wrong and I know what the answers are. And so there's this group of people coming into the church, mocking other Christians saying, yeah, this return, well, Hey, our own, you know, talks about the fathers, our, our Jewish brothers and, and sisters from the past, they died and went away. The world still seems to be the same. So, so what are you talking about here, right? But notice how Peter corrects them and their sinful desires. He says, whoa, 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 hold on here. Case in point, great, okay. You have some questions? Notice what he says in verse five. He says, for they, these scoffers, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the word world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exists are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then he goes on, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as, a one, as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So a watching world, a group of people come in and say, hey, where's this God? It seems like the world's just the same. Didn't you talk about this return and God making all things new? But he says, I, I want you to remind you of a couple of things. Now, what's so brilliant about Peter is his, he's making a little nod and a little wink, wink to two stories of the Old Testament. Do you notice here the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> it's right in there, right? Do you remember when God sent the flood on the earth? But there's one minor detail that we forget. Well, there's actually two. One is God promised he'll never destroy the earth again, right? When he flooded the earth and destroyed people, but he didn't destroy the earth. It's still there. Right? There's something else going on that even in the flood, there's still this remnant, the, the good creation was still there. He didn't, he didn't destroy it. And then in Sodom and Gomorrah, even though judgment came on because of their sin, he didn't destroy the earth, did he? He gave them second chance after second chance after second chance. So you can look out on the earth and you can look out into the world and go, well, where's this God? Oh, it seems like everything's still the same. But he says, hey, hey, remember when God came and in his mercy, had every right to destroy the whole thing and burn the whole thing down, but he didn't. That he gave second chance after second chance, even in their sin, right? And he continues to give Israel second chance after second chance, even though they're, they're stubborn and, and hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And, and one minute we love you, God, and the next minute they're making idols, right? A lot of what he does with us, right? <laughs> second chance after second chance after second chance. And so even in that, this, this theology of that the whole thing's going to burn even goes against the promises that God has made for his creation. It says, I will never destroy the earth again. I will never burn it down. I will refine it with flood and water and fire as necessary, but I'm not going 
to destroy it. And I think it's important when we look at some of these details, and we'll get to the, the other, the second part of his accusation and trying to correct these, these scoffers here in just a second about the patience of God. But, but notice here, he says in verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that are until the day, um, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, a lot of people will take that verse and go, well, there it is, Ryan. See, I don't know what you're talking about. The whole thing's going to burn, right? It's going to be stored up for fire. Now, what's interesting about Peter is he's a little bit of a pyromaniac because I've heard him talk about fire before. So if you go back to his first letter, go back to the first chapter, 1 Peter, what a glorious way to open a book. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3 or chapter 1, verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Could it be that fire has another meaning in Scripture? That even the Old Testament prophecies about, you know, the sun, you know, being blacked out and fire and all this stuff, is that literal fire or is that just metaphor? I think it's metaphor. I don't think God's actually going to burn things up. But what fire does is what does it do? It refines. It purifies, right? He says, you're going to go through these trials, these various trials. And what it's going to do, it's going to, going to kind of break you down. It's going to humble you in such a way. And this beauty is going to come through. That all the, the gross things on this valuable thing, this, this piece of gold, all the good parts are going to rise to the surface. So when we think about that on a cosmic level, this fire that's being weighted is this good earth that has been marred by sin and evil. And yes, it is broken and it is flawed and it doesn't function as it should. And our lives don't function as it should. But there's going to be a purifying, a renewing that all the good and the beauty and the rightness of it's going to come to the surface one day. He's not burning it up and decimating and just leaving it for dead. He's actually taking fire to make it even better than what it should be and could be. So Peter uses that imagery often of fire to refine and renew and restore, right? It is amazing how, um, I know you're not supposed to do this in the city, but I have neighbors, um, God bless them, but um, they like burn their trash a lot. Um, you're not supposed to really do that. Like they really get after it, like almost to the point of like, should I call someone? Um, it just seems like, <laughs> I don't think the flames are supposed to go that high and we're like in the city. But um, anyway, uh, but there's something about fire taking what is garbage and trash and, and unwanted and starting fresh and starting new. As much as um, we hate to see wildfires, I grew up in California and um, you know, it just seems like they have like, now they have uh, winter and summer and spring and, uh, and, and other seasons, but now they have fire season apparently um, because everything's just constantly burning down. But the thing is, even in our ecosystem, it's good once in a while for things to burn down to be restored, right? So I think even woven into creation is this idea that things have to be burned and renewed so that the good stuff comes to the top. Now, Peter continues to respond to this apparent absence of God, and he 
hones in on, did you notice, about God's patience. If you go back to Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 3, verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, he's quoting Psalm 90, verse 4. Good uh, Jewish man knows his Old Testament backwards and forwards. He's like, hey, I remember something about God's um, patience and how he's outside of time. Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but a yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night, that God is outside of time. A day is a day, a thousand years. He doesn't, he's not consumed by the clock. He's not linear that we are. He sees the whole picture. He sees the whole plan. He he's not, doesn't grow tired and weary as we are. And we are such slaves to the clock, aren't we? Right? Everything's about, okay, are we on time? Are we, you know, right? God doesn't ever look at his watch. I don't think he has one. Uh, I mean, if he did, it would be an eye watch. But I mean, that's here or there. That doesn't matter. Um, but he doesn't think in those terms. We think in those terms. We think in linear terms. Hey, church, where's your God? Everything seems to be the same. But he says, God is patient. He's eternally patient. Why? Because he wants people to come into fellowship with him. He wants people to have the opportunity to repent and come into the family of God. Like, think about how amazing that is. Like, yes, we do want God to return. Yes, we do want him to all make all things new. Yes and amen. I mean, there are times in your life when you're going through it. You're going through the ringer. You're suffering. You're just falling on your face. Your kids are driving you nuts. Marriage is difficult. Life is hard. Work is hard. And you're just like, Lord, come quickly. Have you ever prayed that prayer? <laughs> right? Whether we really want it to happen. Yeah, I mean, just this week, Courtney prayed it a lot. Right? We all have. But let's slow down just a moment to think about our God and his character and his mercy to say, hey, is there a chance, is there a possibility that my slowness is because I'm so full of mercy and love that I want more and more men and women and children to come into my family? Because after all is made new, there's not a chance after that, right? Give us another billion years if that's what it takes, Right? And so we only see what we see. We only see our little lives. We only see our little families. We only see our little neighborhoods. But God is saying, hey, I just want to remind you as much as you think you're really smart, scoffers. I know scoffers got to scoff. But could it be that our God is eternally patient in ways that you don't understand? And he has a bigger plan going on than you might realize. What if in our wonky, weird theology and, and just the whole thing's going to burn is actually this idea that, man, I'm so glad God's patient. I mean, I'm so glad he's patient with me. I mean, you're in this room if you're a believer because God's patient with you. But, but I'm so thankful for his patience because there's a lot of people in my life that don't know Jesus yet. And he's not done yet. And, and I, I'm glad for that, right? As, as hard as it is and as cha- the challenges we have, but he's a, he's a gracious God who says, I got a bigger plan that's going on that, that I am. And it's not just, you know, just souls in heaven by any means, but it's also this cosmic renewal that he's doing. He has this bigger thing that he's going on here. And did you notice the tenderness of Peter in verse nine? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, beloved. 
He's speaking with a pastor's heart to his church to say, God is patient, just hang on here. Yeah, you may not see instant results. Of course not. It's slow, it's plodding. God said it was gonna be like that. I mean, what do they think the parables of Jesus are about? It's about the slow plodding thing where God's kingdom is slowly breaking in like leaven and bread, right? It's like a mustard seed, this tiny little seed that just seems so insignificant, but when it blossoms, it's massive, right? So with our eyes, we only see, you know, why isn't it going faster? Why isn't it bigger, right? Especially in America, we just, we're addicted to speed and we think that's how our lives should be and that's how discipleship should be and we're addicted to efficiency and we think that's how our lives should be and that's how the world should be, right? That the world, I'm sorry, Richard, it's not just spreadsheets and finance. I'm sorry, bud, right? We know it's messy. We know it's broken. We know it doesn't function as it should, but so often we're impatient with each other because we think that's the way people's lives should be. And we all know if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, it's slow and it's painful. Like how many times have I told myself, I feel like I should be further along than this? Like it happened just this week, right? Like, geez, I I said that to my wife. Like (laughs) it's, it's almost laughable, right? But we lean into the patience of God that if he's eternally patient with the whole cosmos, isn't he going to be patient to us? (laughs) Day in and day out. Now, there are a couple of little details we have to deal with. Because there's a lot of fire talk. There's a lot of dissolving talk. There's a lot of talk of things passing away, going away. But if we jump down to verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, this is a lot of where we get kind of our theology of like the whole thing's just going to burn, the, you know, the whole thing's going to dissolve. This is, you know, there's no point. You know, why do we even have jobs? Why do we have families? You know, it's just souls in heaven, brother. We just got to get people to get souls in heaven. Everything else is just details. But like I said earlier, is that if we hang on to this metaphor of fire, it doesn't always mean decimation. Right? Peter's, again, a Jewish man speaking with Jewish metaphor. He, he understands that, that fire is good for refining and renewal and transformation. Now, when you look at this, these texts, notice what he talks about this passing away or, or burning away, or um, the heavens passing away. Some translations actually say these heavenly elements. I don't know why the ESV uses bodies. Well, I'm reading from the ESV. You may have a different translation. But these heavenly elements... So why is God's realm, it seems like, being burned up? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. But then you see in verse 10, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It doesn't say burned up. It doesn't say dissolved. So there's something about this. There's a heaven, God's realm, and there's an earth, our realm, and somehow these things are being refined, but the earth is the thing that's going to be exposed for what it is. What I think this is talking about, and I think this is very clear, and again, this is why we have to read Scripture in context and not just read just 2 Peter and go like, okay, here's what it says, right? But there's other biblical writers that talk about these things. And I think one of those really clearly, and there's a couple of them, is Revelation 21. John talks about the heavens and the earth coming together to become one, this new heavens and this new earth. Well, what does that mean? There's a new heavens, new, and a new earth. This earth is being exposed for what it is. There will be judgment. There is going to be purifying and and showing it for what it really is because of sin on the earth. But there is no sin in God's realm. 
So, so what's happening, there's a, a purifying that needs to happen because both of these things are going to come together as one. And you can't have a holy, perfect God in God's realm dwelling with something that is broken and flawed and sinful. It needs to be refined and purified to come together as one. And that's why Revelation, and we had a Revelation series, which I, I loved a few months ago, but in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe away from every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So there's a former version that God is renewing and restoring, but he's not getting rid of it completely. He's refining it. He's restoring it. He's he's renewing it. And that was all kicked off first by Jesus' resurrection. That the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was his way of standing on human history and standing on the world world stage saying, sin and death and sorrow and life and death don't have the last say. Fully bodily resurrected from the dead. That's why when we say in our creed, Apostles' Creed, it's like we put that detail, bodily resurrection, because that changes everything. Jesus didn't come as a spirit or a ghost. He came to his disciples and said, hey, let's have breakfast. You remember that part? (laughs) It didn't come as a ghost, right? He came fully bodily resurrected from the dead. Why? To give us a little taste of what future resurrection is about. To give us a taste of what he's doing on the earth. Restoring restoring body and soul and the entire cosmos. Reversing it from evil and sin and death. The cross said, I'm going to disarm all the evil and all the sin. It's not going to have the last say. When he walked out of the tomb, he said on human history, a whole new possibility has broken into the world because of my resurrection. But what we do is we over-spiritualize it and we make it just kind of this vague hope that really means nothing. And it's just about spirit and it's just about vagary and hope, but it's not about actually boots on the ground and doing the work of resurrection. That if God is restoring this place, then this place matters. Why did Jesus teach us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? If he didn't care about this earth, (laughs) right? It doesn't make any sense. That's our prayer. That's our posture. God, make more of your realm, your kingdom, your way, your love, your grace, your mercy, your power come to earth as it is in heaven. Your realm coming into our realm. That's what we pray for. That should be the posture of our life and our work. God, I want to see more of that come in this place, in the here and now. Now, the beauty of the kingdom and the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have this utopian view like it's all on us, like to make this happen. We don't believe that at all. It's all by God's grace. But our theology should be one that the whole thing's not going to burn. God is actually renewing this place. God is restoring this place. That's why when somebody asked Martin Luther many, many years ago, hey, what would you do if you knew Jesus is returning? He said, I would plant a tree because this place matters, right? And here's the thing, church. 
I think we all know it deep in our bones. Whether we're believers or not, because why in the world would we get up and go to work every day, (laughs) get married, have kids, right? Do the things that we do if this life and this world doesn't matter. It just seems like the most psychotic, ridiculous thing we'd ever do. Like, why? Like, rationally, it doesn't make any sense. Like, just eat, drink, be merry, and, and die, right? Like, if this place doesn't matter, if our lives don't, don't matter, then just wait for heaven, right? But there's nothing that I see in scriptures, there's nothing I see in history that the early church understood the world in that way. Because what does Acts 14, or, uh, 17 say? That the early church literally turned the world upside down. Like, in every way, shape, and form. This ragtag group of Christians had no money, no power, no wealth, no influence, no anything. Following this Messiah, this resurrected Christ, literally turned the world upside down. And what we know from history is they were preaching the gospel, getting thrown in jail about this resurrected Christ with this new world that had broken in, that sin and death didn't have the last say. They were the the hospitals, they were the social workers, they were on the front lines of helping their their neighbors, loving their their enemies. They didn't start a revolt, they were right in the thick of culture and and bringing beauty and hope and grace to these, these people. They had no influence, again, no power, they didn't have curriculum, they didn't know who Tim Keller was. I mean, I don't know how they did it. They didn't have an ESV study Bible, they didn't have a Jesus storybook Bible and all its curriculum. I don't know how they did it, church. And yet we have all these things. And yet often in the West, especially in America, our churches feel anemic. Because I think we don't want to admit it, but I think something subtly has crept into our theology that says it's all going to burn anyways. What are we going to do about it anyways? So who cares? It's too dark and too broken and too messed up. Throw up our hands and go have some Chipotle, right? And I'm not saying Chipotle's not good. It's amazing, right? You're having a bad day. Burrito bowl, let's go. I'm not saying that. That's God's gift to us too. But if we're honest, it happens all the time, Right? But I think what the resurrection does, and I think when we look at these, these texts, if we understand that God is, is building out, as he says in verse 13, a new creation, he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? It actually seems weird that he would care about our lives of godliness and holiness and righteousness and doing righteousness if the whole thing's just going to burn. Like, what's the point? Right? What's the point? Unless there's something new breaking in. If there's something new God is doing, if there is a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth that are coming to break in so that we can live differently because of the resurrection of Christ. Which gets to our our final question, which isn't as long. How does this, knowing this, understanding this, how does this shape and inform the mission of our church? Now, one of the things I I didn't say at the beginning of my sermon, which I I should have because then it would tie in a lot nicer, um, but I I forgot is that our future hope determines how we live in the present. In other words, how we see the future informs how we live today. And that's why I, I mentioned the first Peter text, right? We have this living hope. Why? Not because of us, because of our gut and strength and knowledge and, right? 
We have a living hope because of a living God who's been resurrected from the dead. Like it's living and active, not because of us, but because of Jesus and his resurrection. By being in him, we are resurrected from the dead. We are resurrected people following our resurrected Savior by the power of the Spirit. And so if we believe that resurrection matters, and we believe that not only resurrection of us, but also the entire cosmos is going to shape the mission of the church. It's going to motivate us for the mission of the church. So what does that entail? And I'm just going to grab three things. And I've, I've stolen a lot of these from a, a person I, I think is really helpful on some of this, these conversations, a guy named N.T. Wright. And, um, and, and he's written a lot about kind of first century history and how people would have thought about Jewish culture, but also how they, he's written a massive tome on the resurrection, one of the best that's ever been written, at least in the last hundred years. Um, and here's what, what he, he suggests. Part of our mission must include at least these three things. Um, there's more, but at least these things. One is justice. And I know we get in trouble for this. We talk about this and now, oh, we're liberal and we're this and that. But here's how I think about justice. From general, Genesis to Revelation, the intention of God from beginning to end is to set the world to rights through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. That's what justice is. It's taking what is broken and sinful and, and, and wrong, and w- which doesn't allow people to flourish, and reversing that. That's what justice is at its core. And it's all rooted in the resurrection of Christ, that God came into the mess to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves. He's not going to let the world just burn right? God so loved the world, John 3, 16. He didn't come to, to, to just redeem it, to condemn it, but to redeem it, to restore it, to save it. He loves the world, and he loves us, and he loves the thing that he, he made. And so justice has to be a part of this, is wherever we see things that go against God's good creation, that's what sin is, Sin is that anything that goes against the flourishing of God and neighbor and friend and community, whatever it may be, from the biological level to the spiritual level, this all-encompassing thing, anything that goes against the welfare and the peace and the shalom and the flourishing of people is often sin. Sin is treason. It believes lies. Sin creates this community of people that it's about competition, right? Like you're my enemy and you're my competition, right? It's so devastating that, that we look out and we just think like, well, you're, you're the problem, right? Because it's all about me getting my thing and getting my, and this maybe this is a specifically American problem, Western problem, this kind of hyper-individualism. But what's so interesting about the early church, I mentioned Acts 17, turning the Roman Empire upside down. And that's what other people said about the church. It wasn't what they said about themselves, <laughs> It was as they looked at what the work they were doing, proclaiming this resurrected Christ, this new creation that's broken in, and this, this opportunity to have our sins forgiven, this opportunity to have a relationship with God, and, and this, this new thing that had come in. Guess what? They were out there with this resurrected Christ, empowered by the Spirit, doing all kinds of good in the world, speaking into the dark places to bring light, to say, no, Roman Empire, no Roman dictators. You're not going to treat people like that. Jesus has something to say about that. Jesus is the true Lord. You're not the true Lord of creation, right? That's why we read lordship. When we read Lord in the, in the scriptures, it was their subversive way of saying, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's the creator God. He's the redeemer God. That was a very political statement. That was a very subversive statement in their day to say, no, 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 no. There's someone else who sits on the throne and he operates in a total different way. 
So I think when we think about holiness and godliness and righteousness rooted in new creation, that we are new, we've been made new by the gospel and by the spirit, is justice has to be part of that, right? Has to be. Now, secondly, um, I think beauty is part of this too. I know, and this, this is a little more of a challenge for me um, just to articulate this well, but I think it's simply this, is that we're made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, that means we reflect God. And what God is, is ultimately a creator. And so he invites us to be co-creators with him, he even calls us to be pro-creators. Like, like, have you considered just, and some of us have had children here, um, as you can see, a lot of children. Um, some of you are really good at it. But um, <laughs> the fact that a human can carry human life and bring it into the world is absolutely astounding. I just think about that for a second. I know ladies that have had children, um, it doesn't feel great, um, and that's part of the fall, but we apologize on that. Um, but if you really pause for a moment, the God of heaven and earth has given us the ability to create life. Unbelievable, right? Create, procreate, but also to create, to create beauty, to create things, right? Out of the minds of people, there are engineers in this community that have thought up things of how to make bridges better and how to make buildings more safe, right? Out of the mind of people, they, we've made great art over the centuries. We've made great poetry and great music from the minds and hearts of people because we are made in the image of God. You can't tell humans not to create. It's our default mode. So part of Christians being made in the image of God, but also being new creations, how can we make things? And I'm not just saying just art narrowly, like paint on canvas or dance or sculpture, which Marcus was like, amen, yeah, brother, this is all about the art. Um, but whatever we're making, whatever we're putting out into the world is that there's something about understanding, hey, the world is not the way it should be, but the creation is good. And God isn't the creation. He's separate from it. But God's not done with it. And God is making all things new. And so there should be this, this, this little thread of hope that runs through the things that we make. It's being honest about, hey, things are jacked up. Things are broken. Things are evil. Things are sinful. We're part of the problem. Other people are part of the problem. But I, I know from new creation in Romans 8 and other texts like Revelation 21 and 2 Peter 3 that God is making all things new. So guess what? We have hope. There's always hope that our art should speak to that. The beauty that we make should speak to that. Um, I live about a block, big block from Troost, and right on the other side of Troost, there's this little overpass, and it was, it's kind of an area of our, our, our city that just needs a little love and attention, and I, and I love that there was a group of people that were making murals, these beautiful murals under the overpass, right there off of Troost, to say, hey, beauty matters. People want to be where things are beautiful, right? They've done studies on this in cities. Like the, one of the things that you can do that helps our cities better than anything is to bring beauty into those places, right? Plant trees, make art, right? Make great music, right? And we so minimize that because everything's about efficiency and money and buildings and all these things. But what about just pure things that are beautiful to look at, right? Why do you, I mean, me and Matt, you know, Google, Google, goggle, I don't know if that's a word, um, over the Nelson Museum, like just going to the fact that we have this little museum in our city that we can go look at beauty anytime we want. So what does it look like for us to create beauty in the world when we see darkness? 
And then last, I'll, I'll close it with, with this, um, is evangelism. I know that's a big E word and it's a cuss word to some of us, but, um, but I think there's a new way of doing evangelism, sharing the good news of the gospel with other people. We have this kind of new creation theology kind of swirling around in our hearts and our souls in our, our minds, because here, here's the thing. <clears throat> Usually our presentation of the gospel is very individualized, right? It's just like, you're a sinner, you know, God made the world, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, so you better get things right, and better, you know, if you want to go to heaven, that's what you need to do, is just believe on Jesus, right? And if I was a little kid, and some of you were little kids, bowing the knee at the side of the bed, just going like, I just don't want to go to hell, like, what does that do to your theology later in life? That the whole thing is just avoiding hell, Right? Not that hell and heaven don't exist. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is like, if that's our whole presentation, just to say a prayer or just to, you know, confess something and then, hey, just suck it up for the next 50 years, it's going to be rough. But what if you had a little more robust, and believe me, God has used those poor presentations in my life and other people's lives a million times over. I'm not negating those things. Um, But what if you realize that it's not only that we've, live in this good creation that God has made. We're made in his image, but sin has broken it and we're part of that problem and that we need to acknowledge that and we need to be renewed and restored by Jesus. Yes and amen. But what if you said, hey, but you're also part of this bigger cosmic thing because of the resurrection of Jesus. That it's not just wait for heaven. You're good, you're in. And your life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do with your work. It doesn't matter where you put your hands to. It doesn't matter the art that you're making. It doesn't matter any of those things. What if we expanded that out and said, actually, all those things matter because of the resurrection of Jesus? What if in our disciple-making with our kids and, and with the people that we encounter at the beginning, we start talking about these things? There's a lot bigger thing going on. The whole thing's not just going to burn down. So they understood when they became a follower of Jesus that I can participate. I can play. I have gifts, I have talents, I have things that I can be, be part of this thing that God's doing of making all things new. I want to play, I want to be part of that. And, and, and church, I want to hear, hear this, please. What I'm not saying, because I know what some of you think is like, well, here we go, I'm going to Africa, That's what's, this, this is where this is headed. <clears throat> I'm going to be a missionary in Africa, that's it. I just knew it. I have to be a pastor now, I knew it. Here's the pastor, we need more pastors. No, I'm actually, I, I, we don't need more. We need more men and women out in the marketplace, making good art, building bridges for the glory of God, teaching kids for the glory of God, because God is making all things new, right? Like that, we're all get to play a part. <clears throat> this is not a, you know, I have a little part to play <clears throat> to actually help equip you to do this, right? I'm off the hook. No, just kidding. Um, it's all on you. No. But, but how we think about discipleship matters and how we think about evangelism. And the reason... I'm so enamored by this and it just awakens my imagination to what the church could be is because I think this is what happened in the early church. They were so attracted to the watching world and it wasn't, you couldn't point to because they had a lot of money, because they're really articulate, because they had the best curriculum, because they had the best church buildings. They didn't have any of those things. There was something about their lives, the joy they had, the ways they went about living in the world, the ways they considered others better than themselves, the way they humbly engaged in dark places with grace and mercy and patience. All these things were so attractive to a watching world, they, they kind of stood, stood back and go, what are you about? What is going on here? I need to know more. 
And I think in our skeptical world, in a world that has, in the church, especially in America, needs some better PR, um, this is how we go about it. Not who can yell louder or who can, you know, show how we're right and everyone else is wrong, but how we can love justice and love our neighbors and proclaim the good news of a God who's making all things new and he loves you and loves this world and he's not burning it up. Over time, I think we'll see a lot more attraction, curiosity around the gospel and the kingdom to say, what is this thing? How can I be part? Well, church, every um, Sunday we have the, the blessing to take the Lord's Supper together. And one of the, the blessings of, of that is to be reminded of, of Jesus and, and his life and his death and his resurrection that, um, as you know, the, the bread represents the broken body of Christ and the blood and the blood and the cup represents the blood of Christ that comes to cleanse us and forgive us of all of our, our sins. But there's also this other feature when we think about Jesus and we think out he is the embodiment of what the kingdom of God looks like. He's the embodiment of how we live this out together. He laid his life down for his enemies. He calls us to lay our lives down for even people that don't love us. He showed grace and compassion and mercy to people that didn't deserve grace and compassion and mercy in his time and in his place. He healed and he restored. He taught about the kingdom of God. All of these things, as we come to the table, we're reminded of, of what the kingdom of God looks like, of what God is up to, that in his resurrection, isn't it amazing when he stands before his disciples and instead of condemning them and saying, where were you? When I needed you in my moment of pain and struggle at the cross, where were you? What does he say? Grace and peace to you. Let's eat. Because that's who God is.